You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Don Guerra. And I'm Nikki Stewart-Ingersoll. This is the WFHB Local News for Monday, January 31st, 2022. Later in the program, WFHB correspondent Abe Shapiro speaks with Haley Moss, Florida's first openly autistic lawyer, in our new weekly segment, Disability as Ability. More in today's feature report. Also, coming up in the next half hour, we have some coverage on voting sites from the Monroe County Election Board. More in your daily headlines. On January 27th, the Monroe County Election Board County Clerk, Nicole Brown, shared a concern she has regarding the security of their storage facility. The only thing that I would say um, is that we did get an unusual call from the owners of the storage facility in Ellisville that someone had contacted them requesting to know what was in our storage site. Um, We are fortunate, incredibly fortunate, that because my office pays the bill, that they did not, they told whoever called, and I don't know if it was an innocuous caller or a bad actor, um, but they told that person, we will not share anything with you. You do not pay the space for this. And so, Um, Those are the kinds of concerns that I have with respect to where things are, who's in control of that. And um, so I just wanted to bring that to the board's attention that I did learn of that call um, and just make sure that it is in the record that I have concerns about that. Board member Donovan Garlitz discussed the buildings that he has reached out to. He said that four out of the five responded. However, they said they would prefer to have the equipment taken down nightly. Clerk Brown responded, saying that she doesn't have many other options if these sites do not work out. I think I've said on a previous meeting, by the time I was looking at places that had to look at places that we actually use on Election Day, I think I told you um, that it had been recommended that we not use places that we use, I kind of ran out of options um, and and had to start thinking about some things that at least, as you said earlier, we already know are ADA compliant. We, we already have history with them. And so perhaps they would be generous and allow us to use those, uh, you know, for a little bit more time than election day. Um, I don't have, I, I bring all of that up to say, I really am out of options to recommend to the board if we cannot make these work. Gartlett said that although the sites were not optimal, Clerk Brown has done her due diligence to make the voting sites work for everyone. Okay, well, Nicole is right. Uh, People will come to Election Central to vote. Uh, They'll come and they'll argue with you. And, you know, that's, that's right there. I have to have a person 
basically standing at the door saying, no, you don't vote here anymore. If you do all your voting at Napa, then we can do all of our work at Election Central. If we take Napa and do voting and Election Central and do voting, then I will have to move to the showers location to do my part of the election. Does that make more understanding? And then there's also the, the question is, how much of Election Central are you going to use for early voting? Because if you use too much, then I still have to worry about overseas and having people in there. Um, our, our elderly people this year do not want to sit as close as we had them last time. Uh, we're, we're going to get some pushback. Uh, we didn't know what we didn't know at the last pandemic, but now that people know, they're not going to want us to cram them together. Um, last time we put two people at one table for the EPO books. I don't think that's going to be possible this year. They're going to want one table all to themselves. So you're, you're also dealing with those questions too. Uh, if we keep it Napa, then do how do we utilize Election Central? If you have both locations, I'm, I'll gladly go to showers, but you're still going to have to refigure Election Central too. President of the board, Shruti Rana, agreed, saying that Brown's work has made sure that the voting sites are all accessible and in compliance with ADA requirements. Garlitz acknowledged that they are running out of time to make a decision on the voting sites and motioned that the election board use the Napa building as the sole in-person voting location for the primary and general elections and the Johnson Hardware building for mail-in votes. Brown said that to avoid confusion, she would prefer to use the North Showers building for mail-in votes with both the Napa building and Election Central for voting central locations. Deputy Clerk Tressa Martin explained that people are accustomed to voting at Election Central and will show up regardless of their official decision to use the Napa building. Rana explained the importance of keeping things clear to make voting as easy and accessible as possible. My feeling from all of that is any little barrier that comes in has a damping, dampening effect on voting, right? So if, if people have to turn around and do something um, even if it's as simple as walking across the street, you will just lose people, right? Or if if they have to wait an hour versus 15 minutes or even half an hour versus 15 minutes, again, people will just walk away and, and you lose people. And, you know, when I was doing some of that here, there was like, you know, a couple of things where I would see people come to the front entrance of a school, but the voting entrance was the back entrance and they would just walk away and not go around to the back, Right. And most of those people who leave, who, you know, they make all the effort to show up to vote. Um, they go wherever they're supposed to. And even if it's just they didn't know that they were supposed to walk around to the back or something, they leave and they don't come back. Right. So they never end up voting. Um, and so I just, you know, when I think about these things, I want to make it as easy as possible. Like, I think one of the big um, factors in access to voting is just making it as easy and simple as possible. The board voted to utilize the Napa building as the in-person voting site for both the general and primary elections, and to have the Johnson building open for the final two weeks of voting. The board voted to approve the motion unanimously. The next meeting will be held on February 3rd. A 
Up next, WFHB correspondent Abe Shapiro speaks with Haley Moss, Florida's first openly autistic lawyer, in our new weekly segment, Disability as Ability. This is part one of the interview. Starting tonight, I'll be taking you on a ride through the world of mental and physical differences as seen through the people who embrace those differences in pursuit of a more accessible and tolerant society. It is my hope that through this program, we can cast that oh-so-important spotlight of existential dialogue on an often-forgotten community, that of the neurodiverse and physically diverse. So hop on board and let's turn disability into ability. Who better to start us off on our journey of transformation than Haley Moss? Diagnosed with high-functioning autism at three years old, Moss and her parents were told by doctors that she would be lucky to graduate high school. She not only went on to do so, she also graduated from the University of Florida with degrees in criminology and psychology, respectively. After graduating from the University of Miami Law School in 2019, Moss was sworn into the Florida Bar as the first openly autistic female attorney. We turn now to part one of our interview. Uh, I just wanted to start off by uh, asking a general question here, which is uh, what really brought you to the field of social advocacy? That's a great question. I think what happens with social advocacy is a lot of us discover it as a passion almost by accident. I know that sounds kind of strange to say, but when I say we discover it by accident, we discover it by circumstance, lived experience, or something we get into. So what happened with me is I got into disability advocacy in particular when I was a teenager. I had no interest whatsoever. I knew nothing about advocacy. I I volunteered to speak on a panel at a conference, mostly because I was young. I wanted to give back, and said conference was in Orlando, Florida. If you have never been to Orlando or aren't very familiar, it is very, very close to Disney World. So when you were a young person, the idea of going to Disney World and volunteering a little bit of your time is pretty appealing. And when I was on this panel as a young person, I was about 13. I was the only girl. I was the youngest one. And a lot of the questions from the audience happened to be directed at me because of that experience. And I was very aware of the difference that I was making. And that was how I got connected with my publisher and all sorts of other things as a young teenager. And my life has never been the same ever since. No, I definitely imagine that uh, that that was uh, that was a really uh, life changing experience for you. And then I just want to go back a little bit in time as well, because I uh, I read in your book that your parent, well, specifically your book, The Young Autistic's Guide to Independence, uh, and I've listened to your podcast as well. Spectrumly speaking, for those of you, by the way, uh, out there, please tune into the podcast. It is a revolutionary podcast dedicated to. Uh, breaking down the barriers of neurodiversity, get to that in a little bit. But uh, anyway, I read in your book that your parents explained your diagnoses to you in terms of Harry Potter. Uh, now, how did they do this? How did this really help you come to terms with your uh, neurological difference, per se? I'm so glad you want to talk about this. My parents told me I was autistic when I was nine years old, and I was really into the Harry Potter series at that time. Keep in mind, nine-year-old me was a very different time. The Harry Potter fandom was at a very different place, and its cultural significance was very different than it is today. I say that very aware of the fact that J.K. Rowling is considered controversial, to put it lightly right now. 
And when we're talking about Harry Potter, it's my parents brought up that I had superpowers and magical differences, essentially. And what they were saying is that different was neither better nor worse. It's just different. Yeah. And different could be extraordinary. So Harry Potter didn't quite fit in with the muggles because he was a wizard. And he didn't quite fit in with the wizards either because they looked at him funny as the boy who lived with that lightning bolt scar. But he was the hero of the story. And he was still respected. He was still able to be included, all sorts of things like that. And that gave me, as a nine-year-old who was obsessed because the first movie just came out, <laughs> a very different look on how I saw myself. So I didn't think of myself as weird or different as I know so many young autistic people do. I just thought that I was really cool and other people just didn't understand me. So Harry gave me that framework to understand why I was the way I was and that I was just fine the way I was. Like I didn't have to be somebody else to be liked or fit in and that I had my own sort of magic within me. And that made, that was something that was really affirming, I think, as a young person and realizing that I never thought that I was broken, as I know many young people with neurological differences and disabilities often feel that something is wrong with them, or they're broken, or they're a failed version of normal. That that was something I've never felt, and I think a lot of that does come from the way that my parents raised me, that they talked about my disability, and also the way that they explained it to me, and that I had that knowledge once they determined it was appropriate for me to know, and that I had a level of understanding that I would get what was going on. Absolutely. And so I know, of course, Harry Potter, he learned a great deal more about his special powers through going to Hogwarts and whatnot. What would you say some of uh, some of those powers were? I know that uh, in the media and in general, uh, individuals who are neurologically diverse tend to have uh, different or I would say are somewhat stereotyped, especially uh, having read in your book as well, Great Minds Think Differently that neurologically diverse individuals tend to be stereotyped as these mathematical geniuses who can solve things at the drop of a hat. Uh, but I know that you also... I wish that was me. Yeah, likewise. No, seriously, I, I can't... I have dyscalculia, so I, I'm not the math whiz either. But I would say, too, I was really impressed, particularly, that you really made uh, an argument for humanities and a, an emphasis on the arts. Would you say that uh, that some of your talents really began in those fields? Or what, what were those talents that you had, those Harry Potter-like talents that you had growing up? Well, I think we're just going to think about who I was at nine years old. And a lot of this is still very true about who I am today, but I had a near photographic memory as a kid. I also was very creative. So when I was at that age, I was doing acting in all my school plays. I never made it to Hollywood or anything like that. I wasn't one of those like child actors. I just liked acting and drama. I was very creative, so I also was involved in the arts. I just loved everything that was creative. I loved to write. I loved to draw and paint. I loved all of that as a young person and as a kid. I was also very sensitive. I always was a better listener than a talker, I always felt like growing up. I loved to play. I loved strategizing and coming up with new ways to solve problems, so I grew up on a very steady love of video games. I was an interesting kid, and I was always imagining different ways of exploring. And I was, I think that was something that my parents really drilled into me as well. Like you're very sensitive. You're very creative. You're very curious. You're very smart. Like all of those things, instead of focusing on what I couldn't do or what was hard for me, because everybody, especially children know the things that are hard for them. They don't need to have it kind of thrown in their face. Essentially. I knew I didn't have the easiest time making friends. I knew there were plenty of things that were difficult for me, 
But I also knew that and appreciated their mind. Like, there's things you're really good at. And it's not just that you're quote unquote good at school. It's that you have value as a person, you're creative and your talents deserve to be in this world. And getting some form of that when you're when you're nine or ten or even when you're a teenager is invaluable. I think even as an adult, that's something that we don't do often enough. We always are very quick to criticize when folks do something wrong and not when they do something right. Or we go, especially for women, we might immediately go to complimenting what they look like or what they're wearing more so than the things that they're actually doing or character traits. So when I look back, I realized just how powerful, how my parents explained things to me really was. In terms of school, uh, what was a major learning experience for you in elementary school, middle school, high school that was really uh, influential for you, really informed your career choice? When I was in school, I didn't think that I wanted to be a lawyer. I say this very honestly because I didn't really know what lawyers did. I didn't know any lawyers. But one of those things that really made me determined to succeed, I think, might be a better answer thing to answer. So something that ended up happening when I was in high school is my my school had one of those college fairs, as so many of us often go to. Hmm. And I was collecting the brochures for all these schools that were far away from my hometown. And a girl in my grade comes up to me. And I'm like, not thinking anything of it in the moment. And she goes, Haley, you don't have to worry about this. And I just sit there very confused. And I look at her or attempt to. And she goes, well, you could have been born a vegetable. It doesn't matter. Colleges don't care. Because it's just going to be basically like feeding into this narrative that I don't have to work as hard or I didn't work as hard or that I wasn't deserving that my disability alone would essentially get me somewhere. And I was really upset by this because we were in all of the same classes, largely. I was working just as hard. I wanted to go to a great college. I was really determined and it made me feel heartbroken to realize that someone thought so little of me little of what I was doing that my disability alone was the only thing that was going to get me essentially a free pass in life. Not that I took the same tests or I took the same, I was going to take the same SAT or I was going to have to write a great essay just and have extracurriculars just like everybody else. And I felt like throughout my career, I felt like I almost had to prove people wrong. And looking back, I realized that was never what something I ever had to do. I didn't have to prove anything to anyone but myself. And I think that's something a lot of young people with disabilities go through is you feel like you have to prove this narrative wrong, that you're so used to being told that you might not amount to anything or that your disability is basically a free path in life, but you get told all of this messaging and you feel like I'll do anything in my power not to do the statistic. And the same even goes when you hear about autistic unemployment and autistic unemployment is extremely high, that you're like, well, I'm not going to be a number. I'm going to be employed, that you put all of this unnecessary pressure on yourself just to prove people wrong. Looking back on that, I didn't realize what I was doing. I knew that I didn't want to be a statistic per se. But when I look back now, I realized I was doing this stuff for myself. I wasn't really doing it to prove people wrong. And I shouldn't be doing it to prove people wrong. But I wanted to go to a good college because I wanted to have that experience. I wanted to know what it was like to be away from home. I wanted an opportunity to figure out, like so many young people, what I did want to do with my life. Because I think when you're 15, 16, 17, that's a very difficult thing to do. That's a lot of pressure. And I'm lucky that going to college in, I went to University of Florida, go Gators, did put that fire in me that I realized I wasn't good at chemistry. I wasn't going to be a physician. And I realized that I love to write and I love to talk and I wanted to be a lawyer because I realized I can also help other people. 
So that was more than anything, kind of those pivotal moments and realizing that I wasn't doing it to prove people wrong. And that was something I also dealt with when I eventually took the bar exam is I took the exact same bar exam as all of my peers. I studied just as hard, if not harder. I worked for it and I got the result. I did not get a quote unquote free pass or, oh, you're the person with a disability. We're just going to rubber stamp your application. It never worked like that. And I think it's really unfair that people who don't know tend to believe that. So there really is this kind of disconnect. And when you're advocating, and like you said with social advocacy earlier today, that when you're advocating for yourself and with others, it's a very different experience. And you you want to do it so those same barriers aren't there for other people. This has been part one of our interview with author and disability attorney Haley Moss. Tune in next week to hear the second part of our interview, on Disability is Ability on the WFHB Local News. I'm Abe Shapiro. Live and learn. Up next, we have some prison-related news and announcements from the producers of KiteLine our public affairs program devoted to prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. KiteLine airs each Friday at 5.30 p.m. on WFHB. The program is available online at wfhb.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Dozens of protesters converged outside of Michigan's only women's prison on Sunday, January 16th, following disturbing allegations of rape, retaliation, and neglect. Two former employees of the Michigan Department of Corrections say they've witnessed a culture of rape punishment at Huron Valley Correctional Facility in Pittsfield Township, about 40 miles west of Detroit. They also say that drugs are distributed to the inmates who are participating in a program to combat opioid addiction. Inmates are fearful of retaliation for reporting guards and are regularly denied medical attention when seriously ill. The prison has a history of neglect and abuse. In 2009, the state paid $100 million to settle lawsuits that claimed male corrections officers had sexually abused and harassed female prisoners. The alleged abuse continued after the case was settled. Between July 2018 and June 2019, 146 women say they were sexually harassed, and 12 claim they were sexually assaulted, according to the MDOC. In September 2019, the prison was closed to visitors because of a scabies outbreak. About 2,000 women were isolated after they began complaining of rashes. A class action lawsuit filed in September 2019 alleged a host of problems, including overcrowding, poor ventilation, and leaky roofs that had contributed to chronic mold that was making inmates sick. Since the COVID-19 pandemic began in March 2020, 1,046 inmates have tested positive and four have died, according to the Michigan Department of Corrections. With 320 current COVID-19 infections, Huron Valley Correctional Facility has more active cases than any other prison in Michigan.
After serving 27 years in prison for crimes she did not commit, 74-year-old Joyce Watkins of Nashville was exonerated this month, her convictions in the murder and sexual assault of her four-year-old grandniece overturned. Watkins, along with her then-boyfriend Charlie Dunn, had been convicted in 1988 of first-degree murder and aggravated rape and the death of her niece Brandy, but were both granted parole in 2015. Dunn, who died in prison before his release, was exonerated that same year. Watkins, meanwhile, left jail and sought to clear her good name, eventually becoming the first black woman in Tennessee history to have her conviction overturned. Quote, it was a long struggle to get here, Watkins told reporters through her lawyer, Jason Gitchner, the senior legal counsel for the Tennessee Innocence Project. Quote, we're grateful for the judge and we're grateful for the collaboration with the district attorney's office, Gitchner echoed. But Watkins lost 27 years of her life. Charlie lost 27 years of his life. His kids and grandkids grew up with people thinking that their father and grandfather was a murderer. There's nothing we can do to fix that. All we can do is acknowledge what happened to them and publicly celebrate their innocence now. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noelle Herhusky-Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Abe Shapiro. Kite Line is produced by Mia Beach. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Don Guerra. And I'm Nikki Stewart-Ingersoll. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search out call letters WFHB wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for With Good Reason coming up next on WFHB. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB local news volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB local news archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB local news. We are local, longer, 